pockets of a beer or a cold libation. I can tell you how I wrote this little theme. I went and took a call from brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said I'll start up with some talking and some moody clips and popcorn fighting, fantasy explorations and some groundless exploitation. Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxings, full month horror movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the box come on, contest and of course you know it's all about games. I said slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG Variety. Jason. Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. Today is just a short call-in episode. Lots going on in real life for me, so I didn't have a lot of time to do much this week. But I have some really great calls here that help you maybe reevaluate how you look at AD&D thieves and maybe other skill sets we see, non-combat kind of skill sets we see in AD&D. So I hope you enjoy the calls. And then we'll finish up with the theme, or not the theme, but with the trailer for the next Walter Hill retrospective movie, which is coming out this weekend. That episode went a little bit long. Both myself and the co-host are pretty enthusiastic about the movie. So I think that episode actually goes longer in the runtime of the movie. So I wanted to keep this episode kind of short. Without any further ado, oh, well, I guess one last thing I do want to do. I, I want to say goodbye to a titan of the screen, great, great actor, um, died way too soon. And of course, that's Carl Weathers, you know, born January 14th, 1948 in New Orleans and died February 1st, 2024 in Los Angeles. Um, Carl Weathers was you know, not just an actor, he's also a football linebacker, but we, I think most of us know him, even though he had played with the Raiders and, and then with some other leagues, you know, with college football and then with Canadian football league, most of us know him from his acting career. So many great, great roles. Um, and, and, you know, only at 76. So Carl Weathers passed way too soon. And I'm very sad to see him go. I always enjoyed seeing Carl Weathers show up in a movie. Really think he was a great actor. And like I said, I always enjoyed when he popped up. Whether it's, you know, the the energy that he brought to Apollo Creed or, you know, Predator or even some of these other things that, that he popped up in, you know, even things like Happy Gilmore. It was, it was always great to see Carl Weathers show up. Um there's so many great movies he's in. I mean, like things you might not even think of, like Force 10 from Navarone or Death Hunt. You know, Death Hunt, where which is based on the Mad Trapper in Canada, where Charles Bronson plays Albert Johnson. And Carl Weathers is in that, along with Lee Marvin, trying to track him down. You know, Death Hunt's one may be worth checking out if you haven't seen that. Maybe that's a Carl Weathers movie you haven't seen that I do highly recommend, 1981's Death Hunt. Now, he's in a whole a, a ton of movies. And, and most of them really good. He's in. He's got a really small appearance really early on in Friday Foster, one of the great comic book movies of the 70s. You, you know, we had a number of early comic book movies. Of course, the greatest com comic book adaptation is probably 
Scott Pilgrim versus the world. When we look at comic book accurate and the way it comes on alive on the screen as a comic book, I, I think it's really hard to beat what Edgar Wright did with that. But we've had some great attempts before that, right? Friday Foster starring Pam Greer is a great movie that's based on a comic. Um, Danger Diabolique by Mario Bava is another great one. So, so there are some really good ones out there earlier, you know, earlier attempts, but anyway, but Carl Weathers, great, great actor. He'll be sorely missed. And with that, let's go ahead and get into those calls. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator's screaming is coming from inside the house. Jason, Daniel from Manitz, keep calling in. I don't, I hate to input a, impose, impose something. But is it possible, uh, if you're listening, uh, EOTB, to let us know where in AD&D those rules are explained in the way that you're using them? Because that sounds really great. I'm 99.9% .9 sure that's not accurate for BX for the pickpocket. There's even an example in BX that defines it. But again, I'm not saying that this isn't accurate for AD&D, but I really like that. And I also love the idea of the setting the traps which I'm, I don't actually think you can set traps in BX. I'd have to look there. No, I've never had a player really do it. So that's fantastic. I, I love this idea. And of course, I 100% agree that, right, anybody can hide, but only the thief can truly hide in shadows. And and that's that's the key, I think, to interpreting the thieves' tools, thieves' tools, the thieves' skills at your table as a GM. If you're new to this or you're looking at it, because so many people, when I get them into the old school who have played 5e, will go, okay, I'm going to roll stealth. And rolling stealth is not moving silently, right? Rolling stealth is just, I'm going to move quiet, and then GM rolls for a surprise, right? I mean, that's all that really is. So anyways, that's two calls, but I'm, I'm super curious because I love to look these things up. There is a part two to this, and it's not directly connected to what I just said, so I don't want to make it sound like I'm saying that this is true of what EOTB said, but I don't know that I 100% agree with you about learning the game from people who've been playing a long time. I think that... It can happen that people are playing wrong. I mean, I mean, not wrong as, as far as they're not having fun, but interpreting the rules in a way that is not accurate. And I can tell you that when I started doing more chainmail videos online, I got dozens of people sending me messages telling me I was doing things wrong. And when I would say to them, "Oh, great! Can you show me? You know, where in the book that says that, so I can really incorporate incorporate that?" Every time, every time, I'm not exaggerating, they were wrong. They actually were not correct. They couldn't find it in the rule book. They were just like, well, that's how we do it because it makes sense. Okay, well, but it's not written in the rules and you're playing it that way. And now you're telling me I'm doing the game wrong because you are playing this way. So yeah, I, I think that rule books, and I've talked about this a bunch of times. Again, I have this whole thing where I don't love when people put down people that house rule or don't play rule as written because I think we should all just enjoy the game the way we love it. But at the same time, I do think that when somebody teaches you a game, and they show it to you, that's one part of it. Part two is you should dig into it and see, right? When somebody tells you this is how combat works, you should then, once you feel comfortable with the game, read the combat section and see, is that really exactly how it works? Is that what it says there? Is that how I interpret it? Because as much as some people don't want to admit it, 
all of these games, especially older ones, are very open to interpretation. And that's cool. That's why I like them better than some of the modern games that are so well written that you can literally look at where the period or the comma is and know, nope, this is exactly what the game designer wanted. And then you get players who are like, well, I don't want you DM to change that and you're going to use it the way this person told us. I'm much more into a system that's a little more open-ended, a system that's open to interpretation. And yeah, I mean, a good example here would be, well, I'm going along, would be the conversation back and forth with Red Caps, where they read what Guy Gek said about having something else happen instead of killing the person as fudging dice. And I don't read it that way. What I read that as is the dice went bad instead of saying, okay, zero hit points, you're unconscious, you say you broke your arm and now can't fight or something to that effect. You're giving a similar effect, but you're not ending the character from a bad roll. Is that fudging the dice? I don't think so because to me, fudging the dice is lying to the players. That is rolling behind the screen and then changing the results. Here, you're telling them. And if the player said to me, no, I don't want a broken arm. I would rather just have my character be dead. I would be okay with that. And in fact, weirdly enough, I've had that happen in my game where I used injury charts. They, I rolled the injury and they were like, I can't use this character anymore. So I just, can they just be dead? And I was fine with it. I was like, that's cool. You know, if you, if you'd rather have, you know, the, not a broken leg and you'd rather your character die, uh, then that's fine. But I said, you know what, why don't we just take it like this for now? And then we'll discuss it after the game. And of course, when they weren't upset anymore, they were fine playing the character because sometimes, you know, people get very excited about their characters and it's funny, I was just watching, oh man, I don't know the name of her YouTube channel, this YouTube video about like why we care when our D&D characters die, and it was fascinating, like the psychology in it, and yeah, you know, anyways, that's a totally different call. So, to, to summarize my very long message, if it's possible to get those page numbers, I would love to read how it's written in AD&D, because I'll use that, because as you know, I don't use thieves, and I'm trying to figure out how to incorporate them. I don't necessarily 100% agree that you should just go with what somebody tells you when they're teaching you the game. Try to read the rules yourself and interpret them, especially if you're going to game master it. And, yeah, be excellent to each other. I totally stole that. Daniel, thank you for that call. I reached out to EOTB and have a response for you. There was a combination of responses. There were a number of messages, which I forwarded Daniel, uh, text messages, and there's also a verbal response that I'm going to play here in a minute. The one thing I think that got left out of the verbal response that was in the text, well, there are a number of things in the text responses, but I think the verbal response catches most of it. Uh, EOTB does say that he agrees with what Daniel said about breaking the arm instead of killing isn't fudging dice. The other thing that EOTB doesn't really address here is the idea of being careful about learning games from other people that Daniel addressed in his call. And I want to address that, but I'm going to do it after I play EOTB's call. So I'm now going to turn it over to EOTB. Hey, Jason, this is EOTB calling in to address that, those good questions by Daniel. The advanced game was different than the red box lines regarding deep skills and how to handle failure. The mechanical specifics I talked about on the... Uh, 600th episode were are partly overt some are only given as a framework but everything i was talked about is grounded in the direction given in the core books which again differs from the red box so the quickest easiest one is setting traps uh 
if you go to DMG page 20, you'll see that the exact mechanics I talked about are laid out in the section called Thieves and Assassins Setting Traps, that you have to do a second roll to see if the trap you know, essentially backfires on the thief trying to set it. It's not just an automatic result of failing a roll to set it. Now, the find traps, where I talked about that finding, removing a trap, more specifically, uh, is not triggered by failing that check. That is, it's, that one is, is brought out by the fact that it says that in the DMG discussion of the remove trap skill, that if you fail to remove a trap, you can't get a second bite at the apple. But that any other thieves that are with you can then try and remove the trap. Well, if the trap is sprung, then there would be no need to try and remove it. It would just be that you know whoever survived it uh, could then attempt to open the chest, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't try and, and remove it again. So the fact that multiple thieves can each try and remove a trap if the others fail shows that the trap does not actually go off. Um, this is absolutely different than in the red box lines. Uh, it's I completely understand why people who came over from the red box lines would, would kind of bring that in if it was already kind of ingrained because that's what they were used to. But in AD&D, the failure did not equal the bad thing happening. So in pickpockets, it gets um, a little bit more indirect than that, but we're still, all of the things I talked about are still explicitly given as guidance. So, for instance, if you go into the player's handbook discussion of picking pockets and the DMG discussion of picking pockets, it lays out there that, um, <clears throat> you know, that the higher level of the pickpocket person will affect how the mechanic works, that uh, victims only might notice but not certainly noticed that their pocket was attempted to be picked and that you could continue to attempt it as often as you want after failure, presuming that, of course, I guess you weren't noticed. So all of those things combined tells you that if you fail a pickpockets roll, it doesn't mean that automatically you're found out because you can do it multiple times. So the exact numbers that I talked about, now that is more difficult to pin down because Gygax often with non-combat mechanics, he was much more loose than he was with combat mechanics. Combat mechanics, he would give you exact numbers, exact procedure. He wanted combat to run a very specific way because he thought that was critical to balance. Non-combat stuff like this, he would tell you what failure would look like, but he rarely tried to dictate the exact numbers uh, for a lot of things. So, you know, we see this, for instance, with um, uh, tracking. So in with the original tracking mechanic in the first edition player's handbook, it just gave you flat numbers and the modifiers were up to the DM's discretion. But then people wrote in and they wanted all these modifiers. So in Unearthed Arcana, you got a completely revamped mechanic and, and like everything was granulated down to the nth degree. Same thing with pickpockets. You just got the basics. Uh, exactly how that looked was going to be up to the DM. At some point over the 10 years that D&D, AD&D was published, I'm, I'm very confident I remember seeing this in some periodical or some support product, the exact numbers I talked about with like 3x the, uh, the level. You do explicitly see this in the AD&D 2nd Edition Player's Handbook. By that time, this was rolled up into the core books. They gave you the exact numbers I talked about. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that that came out beforehand in some 
non-core product in first edition time. But uh, since I can't, I, I mean, there were so many magazines and products, I can't remember exactly where, but it seems to me that we were using that before 2E came out. So, but anyway, that's where that's grounded. Um, regarding hide and shadows and moving silently, so this gets a little bit more indirect. But again, going back to that idea that combat uh, was specifically laid out and combat was non-combat was more loosey-goosey. So all of the, of the examples of play given... Are, are combat examples. And Gygax talked about how in combat people are, you know, like alert and on, they're looking for stuff. And so, yes, in combat, if a thief failed, the jig was up for him or her, as the book says, or something like that. But in non combat, uh, it's not that way. And so we see that in the surprise mechanic, where perfect invisibility and perfect silence only increase your chance to surprise from two and six to four and six. But if you don't have any invisibility or any silence and you're just trying to uh, intelligently sneak up on someone with, I guess, what you would call, you know, like normal person stealth that's not augmented in any way, you still have a two and six chance. So absolutely, if if thieves fail in those mechanics in a non-combat situation rather than just like, oh, the guard sees you, roll initiative, then you would instead just kind of go back, well, okay, so now he just has normal person quiet movement chances or, or, you know, blending in chances or whatever you want to call it. And that's what I would suggest you do. You go ahead and, and roll surprise because one of the, the features of the surprise mechanic is that you, um, it, it, if you surprise someone, you can slip away unseen. That's for everybody, not just thieves. So, you know, it, again, it shouldn't mean failure should not mean discovery out of combat. Uh, so to sum up, you know, I understand why people might rep, ref the game in a way that makes low-level low thieves walking failure factories. But I think it's good news that, I mean, at least in AD&D, and I think you can backport that into any TSR game, that this is not really what Gygax intended. So if you do want to run them differently to where they're not uh, so unfun to play because success is mathematically against you per se, you can clearly point to authorial support for that. Um, so be kind to your thieves, right? Like the fact that they start off with low percentages is not, does not mean that they can't do their job. It just means that they have initially, you know, only a chance to perform in a preternatural way. But even if they fail at a preternatural level of success, they still have the same chances as everybody else to do these sorts of things. So keep on keeping on with the great podcast episodes and uh, you have a great day. Thank you so much for taking the time to give such a thorough answer to Daniel's questions and also the time to send all those text messages that I forwarded Daniel. It's very much appreciated. And I, I do appreciate your insight into the game there and explanations. To kind of answer the other thing Daniel mentioned, yeah, you do have to be careful. Obviously, just because somebody tells you they know how to play the game doesn't mean that's that they're playing it right or they're playing it the best way. Um, so I, I, I probably misspoke a little bit when I said that in the other episode. But my, my point is that some of these games are definitely easier to learn by being taught from somebody else as opposed to just reading the text. Now, does that mean somebody could teach it wrong? Sure, it could, 100%. But 
Daniel's right in that. I am not denying that at all. But some of these systems, there's all kinds of little hidden things. Like if you initially get into D&D and AD&D, if somebody doesn't cue you into the idea that you're expected to already know chainmail in OD&D before you read AD&D, how long is it going to take you to figure that stuff out? You know, so there are times that having somebody help you that's knowledgeable about it is a very helpful thing. But Daniel's caution is also very worth listening to. Now, Daniel has a few more calls here. So without further ado, let me turn it back over to him. Hey, Jason, I don't think I called in about this, but I wanted to point out that or say that that's pretty cool that you're thinking about doing the Gygax 75 if you end up with the TPK or this ends badly at some point. Um, because I was thinking the same thing, not because of your game, obviously. I wouldn't base it on your game, but I had actually printed the Gygax 75 out a while back and it's just kind of sitting on my shelf and I was going through stuff and I was like, man, I should do this because it's so great. So good on Rayotis for that. It's like the, the gift that keeps on giving. Every time I see it, I'm so inspired to just uh, do that. And, you know, the, the reformatting of it and the adding the examples and all the stuff that uh, Ray did really makes it uh, very palatable, I guess is a good way to say it. Although reading the original article is super fun. Anyways, um, that's it. That's what I want to say. Talk to you soon. Daniel, thank you for that call. Yeah, this week has been kind of crazy um, between work and we're doing construction of the house and everything. Actually, for the blog this week, there'll be an interlude because I don't think I'm going to have a blog entry ready. There's a chance there won't be, but I've got a couple of pre-written posts that'll pop up if I don't get something recorded in time or you know typed up in time. And that might happen this week. <laughs> so watch out for that. But yeah, I think if I have TPK, I'm going to do the Gygax 75, and then I'm going to dive back into solo gaming. I, I think it'll be an interesting little palate cleanser. But thank you again for that call. And just to show that other people do listen to the show, <laughs> we have a call from Joe, who has a Decahedron RPG podcast. Take it away, Joe. Hey, Jason, this is Joe Gill. You know, I've called you a couple times to tease you about omitting things from Rhode Island, but I just heard episode number 598, and in that you were drinking Narragansett beer. Narragansett, of course, is in Rhode Island, and that's where the beer is from. And last time I called, I talked about the Gatsby affair, and the Gatsby was burned in Narragansett beer. So all is forgiven. Rhode Island loves you now. <laughs> um, oh, and of course, Narragansett is what they're drinking at the end of Jaws. Uh, when they're going after the shark. Oh, sorry, the shark. Um, yeah, uh, great episode. And uh, if you want a Rochester beer, uh, people here drink something called Genesee. Anyway, uh, like I said, great episode. Thanks for everything. Bye. Thank you for that call. Yeah, I like Narragansett. I, I think it's a good low-end beer, just something to, to drink, nothing fancy. But, you know, it's kind of like in the same categories, like maybe Miller High Life or original cores, you know, that that's kind of where I put it. And, and it's fine. In, in fact, I'll pick it over other brands often. So thank you for that call. If you, you don't listen to the Decaheter and RPG podcast, check that out, folks. Joe does great things over there and does giveaways. In fact, he has a giveaway going on right now. So go listen to that. It's a pretty cool giveaway. I, I won't give away the details because you should go listen to it. Anyway, that's about it for this episode. 
I've got a lot going on. So this is, like I said in the beginning, just a call-in episode. But I want to thank all my callers. I want to thank all you, the listeners. I want to thank TJ for the wonderful music. Thank Ray Otis for the great coffee cup clip art. I want to ask you to be excellent to each other. And to play us out, I'm going to play the trailer for the movie that we're doing on Sunday as part of the Water Hill Retrospective. Talk to you this weekend. These are the armies of the night. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? The Furies. The Boppers. The Hi-Hats. The Lizzies. The Turnbull ACs. The Gramercy Riffs. Riffs! And these are the Warriors. We know about the Warriors. They're a heavy outfit. They're from Coney Island. Warriors? You guys are the big dudes, huh? Now, they're in the Bronx. We're going back. 27 miles behind enemy lines. It's the only choice we got. Between them and safety, stand 20,000 cops. (laughs) And 100,000 sworn enemies. I want them all. I want all the warriors. They've got one way out. They've got one chance. They've got one night. The Warriors. Rising and the world's gone to hell. We're living for the dying and we're dying for the train.